This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Welcome to 2016. Come on in. Grab a stool, warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. Ian Robertson, our young rockabilly friend, is here on the other side of the glass, looking very much like the ghost of Eddie Cochran. Uh, he's twisting the knobs and the dials. Uh, Albert Vinzel, the quiet, mysterious one, is here running our HOA. Uh, is our HOA up and running? We're not sure. No, I'm getting the thumbs down. We're having some internet issues. However, if you want to try, it, we may get it going later. Uh, you, you may just want to stow this information away for uh, next week, uh, but generally we run a Hangout on Air. And if you want to stream the show live on YouTube, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. Click on the HOA link, which will appear at the top of the feed just around showtime, and you simply click on that HOA link. And you are in the inner sanctum, uh, where you'll see me and my new beard. Not, <laughs> not sure if it stays or goes at this point. At um, Christmas dinner in Brantford, my mother saw it for the first time and said she was, she's 90 years old. So at this point, she's pretty much unfiltered. She says what she means, and she means what she says. And she said when, she, when I walked through the door... Uh, and she saw the hirsute version of her youngest son, she said she was reserving judgment until she had time to think about it. And then finally, at the, uh, she kept giving me these sort of strange glances across the Christmas t- dinner table, and that at, th- at the end of dinner, she rendered her verdict, and uh, she said, I've decided, she said, I don't like it. As I say, uh, she's 90. She can say whatever the hell she wants, and she does. God love her for that. I'm taking her opinion under advisement. Uh, Author-scientist Andrew Smart is standing by from Switzerland to talk about machines, psychedelics, consciousness, the robot apocalypse, the technological singularity, LSD. Wow. How's that for our first show out of the gate for 2016? Uh, Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of fascinating tidbits in the slide carousel up at strangeplanet.ca. Now, that's the landing page. And from there, uh, because, you know, there are a bunch of different projects going on under that banner. So strangeplanet.ca, you go there, and then you go to the radio page for The Conspiracy Show. And there's the slide carousel up at the top. Uh, And speaking of AI, this week... Google released a research paper chronicling one of its latest forays into artificial intelligence. Researchers at the company programmed an advanced type of chatbot that learns how to respond in conversations based on examples from a training set of dialogue. And the bot doesn't just answer by spitting out canned answers in response to certain words. 
it can form new answers from new questions. And this means Google's researchers could get a little creative with it, and they certainly did. They asked the bot everything from boring IT questions to the meaning of life. Uh, the responses were alternately impressive, amusing, and unnerving. If you want to find out what the meaning of life is, according to the Google AI bot, you can find that story again in the slide carousel up at strangeplanet.ca. Was it last week or the week before? We were talking about a Times Magazine correspondent or bureau chief who was contacted by a... Um, uh, what was it? it was a uh, it was a um, some sort of a chat bot. It was a um, it was an AI, artificial intelligence, sort of masquerading as uh, some sort of a um, um, marketing agent, and asking him all sorts of questions. And he quickly deduced, based upon the sort of the rhythm and the pattern, uh, and the even evenness, the sort of the monotone quality of the voice, that it was in fact a robot he was speaking with. And he was able to determine that also by asking it certain questions, like what day is it or something, and it wasn't able to respond, and it would say, I don't understand the question, or we have a bad connection. <laughs> anyway, then he directly asked, are you a robot? And he called it a she. She denied it. So the next time the phone rings and it's someone asking if you'd like your, your furnace ducts cleaned, you could be speaking with a robot. You never know. Uh, don't forget, again, to register at strangeplanet.ca. It's fast, easy, free, and once you're a member, there are lots of, uh, there's lots of free stuff available to you or for you online. Like uh, there's a vast archive of our past shows. There's a past author section, a book club section, and more. And just a reminder, seasons one, two, and three of my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, now available in the U.S. on Amazon and Hulu. And, of course, season four, Coming soon across Canada, we're still waiting on an air date. Okay, let's settle in. We are about to embark on what promises to be, I think, a pretty remarkable journey over the next three quarters of an hour. Now, here's what Douglas Rushkoff writes about my next guest and his new book. Quote, Andrew Smart deftly shows why it's time for us to think deeply about thinking machines before they begin thinking deeply about us. In his new book, Beyond Zero and One, Machines, Psychedelics, and Consciousness, Andrew Smart weaves together binary numbers, the discovery of LSD, computer programming, and much more to connect the vast but largely forgotten world of psychedelic research with the resurgent field of AI and the attempt to build conscious robots. Andrew Smart is a scientist, engineer, interested in consciousness, brains, and technology. His work traverses the boundaries of neuroscience, philosophy, culture, radical politics, and metaphysics. Previously, he published Autopilot, the art and science of doing nothing. Andrew, welcome aboard The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Thanks for, for inviting me on. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. <laughs> it sounds like we have a, a, a fine connection. You're in, uh, is it Bern, Switzerland? Uh, I'm in Basel. Oh, Basel. Oh, uh, I'm uh, sorry? Yeah. Whereabouts? Yeah, Basel, Switzerland. Okay, yeah. terrific. Now, um, you, this is interesting because you, uh, 
listen, everybody's all you know talking about AI these days, the robotic ap- apocalypse, the the technological singularity. Stephen Hawking is warning that this could be the end of mankind. Uh, Ray Kurzweil, I believe, says 2045, m- when machines or robots become smarter than humans, it's you know big tr- something wicked this way comes to quote to quote uh, Ray Bradbury. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, so I, I I open your book and you actually you take a rather interesting um, departure point. You start talking about the discovery of LSD right there in Switzerland by Albert Hoffman, or, an organic chemist. Which I thought, wow, where is he going with this? <laughs> First, let's 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 talk a little bit about um, the discovery of LSD and why you began there. Um, sure. Well, I think it's a. I mean, it's a really fascinating um, history, and I think it's um, kind of forgotten in in sort of mainstream discourse, and I would say even within um, neuroscientific circles and. Uh, in science in general, it's it's largely been kind of suppressed, or um, because the the drug is so controversial. So you, you there's only it's only recently that um, kind of a new generation of researchers has has gone back to the the drug. And you know, at the time when it was first synthesized, it was it was really kind of greeted as a revolution, and uh, psychiatry and neuroscience. Um, really thought this was like a, a huge breakthrough um because bef- before LSD um science really had no idea that brain chemistry had anything to do with moods or perception or consciousness or anything and and it, when when they realized like oh this molecule you know radically transforms your <laughs> your conscious experience then that that actually led to the development of Prozac and other you know antidepressants and the whole the whole range of psychiatric drugs were developed you know it, directly as as a result of that uh, of the discovery of LSD so <clears throat> it's it's a really fascinating history and there was a huge amount of research done um after the the drug was first um synthesized and and the story behind it is really interesting because it was really by accident yes um, as so many great he, discoveries are yeah yeah and he you know he was trying to develop a respiratory treatment um, this is in the early 1940s. Yeah, 1943. Uh, dur- dur- you know, during right during the war, which and it, it's amazing that they were still operating quite normally at that time. And he, yeah, the the story is he accidentally got some in his system somehow when he was working on he was working with this uh, rye, this fungus that grows on rye, um, and synthesizing different variants of of compounds from from the source. Um, and then yeah, one afternoon he he got. You know, he started to see colors and got kind of dizzy, and and he first thought it was uh, because of of chloroform that he was using as a solvent, um, and but then he he kind of suspected like you know it could have been this this LSD that he had just synthesized, and so he came back the next day and tried a self experiment. He just he made some more and he ate it, which is you know kind of uh, unheard of <laughs> today in in drug research. <laughs> like nobody makes an, a new thing that nobody's ever tried before and just eats it. Um, Pretty brave. And, and he, <laughs> Pretty brave of him. Yeah, But yeah. it was the most and, and minute trace he could make because he didn't, he wanted, yeah. a, I guess, kind of a baseline. Well, yeah, he thought he made, a, a, you know, just 250 micrograms, which he thought wouldn't do anything. Um, but it turns out that's a huge, you know, that's a, a really big dose dose of it. And, and he, then he had this incredible experience. And, and first he thought he was dying and going insane. Um, when, when 
sort of at the peak of the experience because he had obviously nobody had ever experienced something like this before, except of course, um, you know, in in ancient or in you know other other social groups that use uh, psychedelics as part of their religious um, activities. So, but then yeah, he uh, but then gradually this this um, insanity feeling or this death feeling um, went away, and then he kind of had this you know, tremendous euphoria and this kind of breakthrough um, for, for several hours where he he felt like he um, had this kind of transcendent experience. Um, yeah, and so that's kind of the the background uh, to that discovery. Um, and so I guess, yeah, the, <clears throat> I, I was, I started off because I, I, so there's, there's two sort of parallel interests of mine that, you know, one is, is robots and art and artificial intelligence. And then on the other side, is, uh, my background is in cognitive science, um, and I've done a lot of work in brain imaging labs and things, and I've always been really interested in philosophy of mind. Um, and so, yeah, one day I just, I kind of, I, I've been, I had been following this, you know, like you mentioned, the whole AI resurgence and, and all this discussion, and then one day, and I've I had a long interest in philosophy of mind, and then uh, um, one day I just, it, it kind of popped in my head, like, well, what if... You know, what if a, if we really reach this singularity, and you have these super these, you know, human-like and artificial intelligences? You know, could they have altered states of consciousness? And and if if not, why? You know, I thought it opened up really interesting problems. Like if absolutely, not, it not? does. It yeah. does. And at the same time, really, I, I I get the sense, and you can you can disabuse me uh, after the break if you if you need to. But you're not really sounding the alarm bells in terms of AI the way many others are. You're not necessarily talking about a robot apocalypse quite yet because, uh, well, and this sort of harkens back to the LSD studies, which sort of gave us a new understanding of what consciousness is and then therefore by extension what it really means to be a human. So in order for robots to become essentially human or smarter than humans, there are a number of other steps they need to take and how do we get from there? Well, it might take a lot longer than Ray Kurzweil's 2045 prediction. Anyway, we'll uh, come back and discuss further. Andrew Smart, Beyond Zero and One, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. All right, welcome back. Andrew Smart is with us. Beyond Zero and One, Machine Psychedelics and Consciousness. Uh, we are talking, well, this is a um, going to be a bit of a rambling conversation, and uh, but that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, I want to I talk about LSD a little bit more and, and ask you whether or not um, because this is really central uh, to your your theory, I guess, about whether or not we need to be worried about AI or a robot apocalypse, as it's being called now in certain quarters. And that is whether LSD improves um, or increases uh, our perception, human perception. Um. I think it's a it's definitely an open empirical question that's actively being uh, researched and I think there's there's some really exciting new um studies coming out uh where we can finally kind of peer, you know, inside the 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 brain while it's on uh hallucinogenic uh molecules and and really um you know see exactly what the changes are in um you know the 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 brain activity using you know using modern uh, brain imaging techniques, and I don't I don't know that anyone has done a, a really serious 
study on on perception and um, you know whether whether performance on sort of traditional psychological tasks improves uh, on LSD or what the effects are. Um, it, it's primarily been researched in uh, psychotherapy or in in therapy situations. Back in the '60s, there was a huge amount of research on you know helping people overcome alcoholism um, and anxiety and things like that. Yeah, and they're using ayahuasca down in, in uh, the Central and South America. Very controversial therapy, but they are, there have been some high-profile celebrities who have gone down there, used ayahuasca to, to do just that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's, um, it's and especially in those, in those cultures where they have um, uh, like, like really a cultural sort of support system for those experiences, you know, to like it, it, it's kind of it, it's a rite of passage, or it's a it's a religious ceremony. So people in those cultures have a cultural context in which you know to fit these experiences. Whereas, I think uh, for us in the in the you know Western world, we we definitely don't have any kind of um, myths or or stories in which to integrate what these what these drugs do. Um, so of course, I think the natural thing to do with it is is try to, you know, help with emotional problems or psychological problems. But as as far as like the accuracy or the you know if it if it allows you to see anything uh, better uh, without the drug, then with it, I I don't I'm not you know I'm not sure of that or how that would be demonstrated. But I think the you know the subjective part of it is is very important, and that's it, that's very hard to study, of course scientifically because it's it's different for everybody um but we do we are starting to get evidence and see exactly what these molecules do um it's for example to the serotonin system um and how kind of the the brain network that is generating your normal everyday experience um you know pretty much disintegrates <laughs> on on lsd or on, on and all all of the hallucinogenics are are very chemically similar. It's just it's just really minor modifications to different um, bonds that make up the, the family of of these kinds of drugs. Right, and they are the there was a there was a period you mentioned the 1960s, and then after that, a lot of these drugs were became prohibited. There was yep. a period of about 40 years when it was absolutely verboten to study. Uh, these sorts of things, and then I went down to UCLA Medical Center and interviewed Dr. Charles Grobe, um, who was using magic mushrooms or synthesized uh, magic mushrooms to help ease the end-of-life anxiety with cancer patients. Yeah, and was having some absolutely remarkable um, results, and um, it 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 sort of leads to the whole discussion about whether or not when you talk to people that have used magic mushrooms or LSD, um, whether or not they have a spiritual experience or not. But it almost begs or leads into a discussion of whether or not consciousness is a product of the mind or exists outside the mind. Yeah. And I think you you quickly bump right up into these really, you know, these ancient philosophical debates uh, that are still ongoing. Um, and despite all of our progress and all of our, you know, and, and despite this this new AI craze, um, we, we, you know, the, these things aren't solved. You know, there's no definitive uh, way to say one way or the other. I mean, I, of course, I have my own ideas, and every, you know, a lot of people have. There's a lot. There's a lot of different theories, but I don't think there's a broad consensus about what, even scientifically, 
about what consciousness is and where it is, um, you know, whether it's inside the brain or outside the brain or, um, you know, there, there's, and there's a really serious um, study of it now within neuroscience, and it's finally kind of accepted within neuroscience and psychology to study consciousness. And that's, that's a very recent thing as well, because before it was kind of a taboo um, topic within, within academic research about, about the brain and the mind because it was too diffuse and too fuzzy and ill-defined and, you know, people could, wanted to study memory and attention and perception, you know, these very uh, easy-to-define and easy-to-measure things. But <clears throat> I think finally with, you know, with the help of technology, of course, we're able now to uh, get, you know, develop a, a very serious um, science of consciousness, you know, within, within, neuroscience, within, like, mainstream neuroscience. And I think that's very exciting. Um, so I think it's it's a very interesting contrast to this. Um, I guess you would call it hype, you know, from from like you mentioned before, like Google, and when when these um, kind of breakthroughs happen or these these developments like the chatbot or um, d- d- different things where people go, wow, uh, we're really almost creating artificial intelligence, and it's this wow, it's think it's really thinking. Um, I, I think when you compare that to what's I think we really still underestimate what's going on in the brain, and that was that was part of the purpose of the book too, was really to point out like for every advance we make, it kind of opens up new questions, and we realize, wow, it's still extremely mysterious. Right, and it, to to reduce humanity to a you know a complex computational uh, you know process that that's what that's the sum that's the be all and end all of what our brains are and our minds is is really um, you know a disservice. But let me get back to then the connection, and you've sort of alluded to this, but let's nail it down here. The connection between LSD with machine consciousness. Yeah, and I, so I basically what I was looking at was you know in within AI there's there's for sure a uh, like a, a theme that the, the the goal is to create an artificial mind and and it would really be it would it would first match you know humans and it would be indistinguishable from a human mind and then it would quickly you know advance to this what they call a, a super intelligence that would be vastly uh superior to us in in all these different domains and so i i started to to think about what you know, well, our our human mind is one of the the main things about it is is that we hallucinate and we hallucinate in a lot of different circumstances, like with schizophrenia or, uh, for example, if you're uh, above twenty thousand feet or w- without uh, oxygen, for example, like mountaineers. And there's all there's all these really interesting um, altered states of of the human mind. Um, and so I thought, if you know, if you really have this artificial mind, and it's that that's also a very uh controversial term but then is you know does that mean that it it should be able to do all the things that our minds can do and so I was just it, the idea was to ask this question of well, once you have this mind and it's um it's human level to to me that also means that it should it should be able to have these altered states because that's a fundamental uh, aspect of our minds. And then I looked more into the the research on hallucinations and things, and there's even it, it turns out that um, you could consider our our everyday kind of experience as not um, totally 
different from hallucinating, really. So the the difference is is more in degrees versus um, it's that it's these distinguishable states of I'm hallucinating versus I'm having a normal experience. It's the same. It's really the same physiology um, and the same brain mechanisms that are generating hallucinations and generating what what you would call normal experience. Um, and I think that that aspect of our minds is is you know pretty much ignored in AI. And and they I mean they're they're kind of just following um, a very I, I, I don't want to say crude, but kind of a, sim, a simplistic um, under, you know, understanding of what the brain is doing. And then these new algorithms come out and, and the hype kind of becomes, oh, it's doing it just like a brain. And, and so part of the point of the book is like, well, we, we still don't really know what the brain is doing. Um, and, and that's what we do know. It's quite different from what um, AI is still, is still doing. And yeah, and I think part of the, yeah, like you said, the, the purpose of the book was to call into question these, um, these timelines that have been proposed that were, were just decades away from real artific- a real artificial mind. Sorry, you illustrate the, the point quite nicely with um, the late, great Robin Williams and an appearance he made on Inside the Actors Studio, and I remember this episode. Uh, and he had the host just sort of <laughs> he just sort of gave up, threw up his hands and said, Okay, just take it away. <laughs> yeah. Because Robin Williams went on one of his patented sort of stream of consciousness um escapades, the way that uh, his mentor Jonathan Winters used to do. I, I I remember as a kid on the Tonight Show and just being amazed at the connections that they would make in such ra- in a rapid way and they would just take something it, it was just the art of improv, but you know, to the power of ten. But to, to talk to me about, you know, why that episode with Robin Williams on Inside the Actors Studio made it into this book, and why it was had such a profound effect on you. Well, I, I think it really fundamentally illustrates kind of the um, the gulf, I guess, between um, you know what these what the chatbot is doing, for example, and what a human, what a real human can do still. And, and and I don't want to suggest that we'll never get there to making an artificial Robin Williams. Like I, I don't want to say that's impossible based on first principles, because I, I, you know, I don't think we we know, and I don't think we can say at this point. But I I think the the interesting thing was that the the way you I think you can get a glimpse of what the human mind is doing, because we you know we all we're all capable of things like that. Not not obviously not like you said. We're, we're order, many orders of magnitude less funny than Robin Williams, but we all have these associations and these vague um, intuitions, and we still don't know what what how the brain is accomplishing that. I mean, there's lots of ideas, but um, we still don't know wh- how that kind of communication can happen among you know among a group of people that where you have one person who's kind of guiding all of our attention and our consciousness to these different relationships among things that we never. That maybe we're subconsciously aware of, but then it takes a, a kind of a genius like Robin Williams to connect these things, and then you 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 have these moments of of humor where you are, all these things are connected, and you go, oh my gosh, that's that's hilarious, and he can rat, he can just cycle through these things, and partially it's of course training that he's you know spent his life uh, performing this way, but partially it's it's just something about the way his brain is built um, that he can use these vague. Um, weak, you know, very weak connections among things that 
that normally don't appear to us. And when they do appear to us, they're very funny because they resolve a lot of ambiguity and things. And right now, you know, even these chatbots um, can't, they, you know, can't cope with any kind of, of these, uh, these types of relationships that, for example, that Robin Williams could connect. Um, we just we just don't understand how that's how that's working in the in the brain yet, right? And we don't and we don't know how to do that with an algorithm either. No, we can't produce Robin Williams with a series of ones and zeros. And and what's kind of I, I don't know about ironic, but um, you know we thought initially that Robin Williams took his life because of depression, and then we learned from his widow uh, that in fact he had he was battling a debilitating neurodegenerative disease, which is, is actually it's quite common, um, a form of dementia, I guess similar to Alzheimer's, but it's called um, LBD, or dementia with, a Louis, is it Louis Bodies, LBD? So, ah, yeah, yeah, and, and I, that, I had read that, yes. So that he essentially was losing his mind and there was nothing he could do about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a terrifying, you know, I, I think that's, a, you know, everyone, that's a terrifying um, thing to have happen if you were... I, I think it's probably one of the most terrifying diseases out there, or these neurodegenerative diseases. So, I, it's I, of course, if you're someone who's used to performing or, or thinking in that way, and that starts to disappear, I can imagine it's just it's overwhelming and devastating, you know, to go from sort of the pinnacle of of human, uh, you know, humor and, and improvisation to not to maybe the you know the. The outcome of that disease might be not, you know, not being able to tie your shoes or not even, you know what I mean? Uh, yes, yes. So, but you know, just being on the cusp of losing one's mind. I mean, it almost was as if as if he was sort of straddling that maybe his whole life, which almost fed into his particular genius. Who knows? I'm not a neuroscientist, uh, but we will continue to delve into consciousness, what makes us human, and why we need not necessarily sound the alarms regarding artificial intelligence. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Coming up in the next hour, Open Lines. Your predictions for 2016. Right now, Andrew Smart stays with us, the author of Beyond Zero and One, Machines, Psychedelics and Consciousness. And he joins us uh, live from Switzerland tonight, this evening, this morning. And um, this is... Uh, well, I love the way you um, your chapters are in, in binary code. And uh, one of the chapters starts off with, or it's titled, A Robot Walks Into a Bar. Uh, is there a punchline to that joke? <laughs> <laughs> no, not. I just, you know, I kind of wanted to, you know, bring up this, this relationship between humor and, and AI. Um, right. You know, I, and, and there's for sure been attempts to make uh, funny, <clears throat> funny chatbots or funny, and a, a, a lot of the, you know, like you said, a lot of the answers that these things give are inadvertently funny you know, because they're, it's almost like speaking to a toddler or something. Where, where, or right. Well, you that you you illustrate it beautifully because uh, people may re- recall IBM's Watson. Uh, it was it was programmed to, to win at Jeopardy, uh, and some of the responses it gave were kind of bizarre. Uh, tell tell us tell us a little bit about about that. Do you recall the? Uh, yeah, well, you know, he, for example, I, you know, there was a a, a Jeopardy clue um, uh, about, uh, you know, about Jane, or about nineteenth century novelists, and uh, and Watson came back with the, you know, said, "What is uh, the Pet Shop Boys?" Oh, it was a question. Um, yeah, that was about Oliver Twist, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he, you know, and and, and you, you can kind of work out like maybe what you know how that came up. But you you I, I at least I laughed out loud when I heard that. Um, and and what's interesting to me is that he <clears throat> is this this idea that he's you know he can be really accurate like ninety percent of the time, but then when he's wrong, he's just absurdly wrong. You know, and I I find that very uh, an interesting difference because when when we're wrong. Um, we're kind of wrong in these sophisticated ways or in these, you know, in these very uh, ways that you, you can deduce almost what rules we're following to arrive at the wrong answer. And it's, ma- and it's plausible. Um, and, and I think we, st- we still don't know exactly how the brain um, combines these, these things to rule out implausible answers. Because there's a kind of a, you mentioned in the book, there's kind of a fuzzy logic that we humans have uh, that if we, if the Pet Shop Boys, and I'm not sure how Watson arrived at that. I mean, the the clue was Oliver Twist and he came up with Pet Shop Boys. I'm not sure how he arrived at that. Uh, But if that, for whatever reason, if Pet Shop Boys were to to come up in our brains, we would eliminate it using this fuzzy logic because we know it's impossible. But an, an, an AI can't doesn't have that fuzzy logic so they're just going to come out with it right and the and and the other thing a lot of people point out is they don't have yet of course um our first of all our our evolutionary history of you know you know millions of years and of uh of kind of inherited genetic intelligence or or knowledge that's that we get uh through dna and then also they don't have a life experience yet of growing up in a culture. Um, and, of course, I think, you know, AI is taking this seriously and, and trying to grow robots, so to speak, as a, as a child does and, and learns. But, but they, even these very powerful systems like Watson, um, you know, just has no, no access to cultural semantics or like what our shared sort of cultural meaning about things. And so, yeah, these these things that we we somehow automatically have access to this vast amount of of cult- shared cultural knowledge, and you know, if if you're a, of a certain age and have grown up in in a certain country or or certain culture, you know, you know, inst- you can recall and recognize instantly what the Pet Shop Boys are, and you know who Oliver Twist is, and it would it would just never the the relationship between the two is is a uh, is not something that occurs to us, but he's you know he's rifling through literally billions of answers, and somehow his algorithms return that this is the most like this is the likeliest answer in relationship to the question. But I think it reveals that he's still just or he or it you know Watson is just brute force um, running through all these all these things and then measuring kind of the probability that. Is this, you know, what, what is the most probable answer, not what is the most meaningful answer? And I think that's kind of the crucial um, difference still. Right. You, we cannot be reduced to an algorithm. Yeah. But, okay, so AIs may never be fully human. They may never get sarcasm, like Sheldon Cooper, uh, or irony, uh, but they could still be... A threat? No, I mean they could still be. They, their computations could be so much faster. And in fact, what may make them so dangerous is the fact that they lack that humanity. Yeah, and and I um, there, there's a great quote um, 
by an AI researcher who says, you know, AI uh, doesn't love you, it doesn't hate you, but you're made of atoms that it could use for something else. (laughs) Oh, geez, that is sinister. Yeah. And and I think that's the fundamental um, risk that that like people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk see is that if you create the you know maybe they won't be human like or they won't be conscious necessarily but they'll 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 go on this kind of runaway course of um, develop you know connecting themselves and developing into things and and they don't necessarily even have goals of their own but they're just from the way that they're designed, there might be these unintended consequences um, where they become very, very dangerous, maybe even before they would reach anything like human level uh, intelligence that that would be difficult for us to control if we're not very careful in how we design these systems. Um, so that it's, yeah, it, it, I, think, I think the risk is um, maybe not so scary as these, um, you know, that they would become evil and try to kill us. It would be that they would... Um, there, there could be unintended consequences of developing these superintelligent systems. Well, um, I mean, it, I suppose if you are just coldly logical, uh, you, you could arrive at sort of a Malthusian philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the good of the many outweighs the good of the few and so forth. And, and us, for us in the West who thrive on uh, individualism and, and so forth, uh, you know, that the rights of the individual are sacrosanct, uh, I can see where that is going to be a problem. I mean, they are now using uh, AI in theaters of war. Now, there is a human overseer at the moment, but at some point, who knows? I mean, that, that human element may be removed, and uh, then we have AIs making these value calls or these judgments uh, based on computations and algorithms, and then... I think we have a problem. Yeah, and I, I think that's the the big risk um, is that we, exactly if you if you give these systems uh, life and death uh, decision making power, um, and on, on the other hand, you know you you have the situation where a lot of these algorithms, um, when they're used as parts of systems, become it becomes so complicated that there isn't there isn't one person who really understands what's going on. Um, I, and an example I, I point out in the book is... is the Let me, I'm sorry, uh, I forgive the intrusion, Andrew. Let me just yep. get you to hold on to that example. We'll get okay. to it right after this break. Andrew Smart, okay. Beyond yep. Zero and One, The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Andrew Smart is with us. Beyond Zero and One, Machines, Psychedelics, and Consciousness. Um, we, we, we've talked about uh, the, the potential threat of, of AIs. And it's interesting you, you point out, you know, this was a, um, a very strange year, the last couple of years, really, in terms of the stock market. Uh, it, it seems no matter how bad the news gets, the stock market keeps going up, 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 up. Uh, when things are bad, gold should be up, but gold is being hammered, uh, uh, the precious metals in general. Uh, up is down. I mean, there is no value in the market. It's... There's, it's really there are no fundamentals, and and yet, I mean, the markets are essentially run by algorithms, artificial intelligence. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's interesting, and and like you you kind of allude to that, there's a huge disconnect between sort of the real life economy and the stock market, <laughs> and I think it's because uh, it is it is very it's to a larger and larger degree more and more automated. 
Um, so you have these trades happening in in milliseconds, you know, like one or two milliseconds that are, that it's even impossible for a human to perceive that uh, short of a time span. And so these thing, these algorithms are making these decisions in, at that speed, um, and it's you know it's it's trillions of dollars that are are shooting around in the system without really any human oversight, um, and and it like I mentioned before it's far too complex for any one person to be able to look at it and, and tell a story about what's going on. So I think you ha- you have this the stock market the stock market is becoming kind of uh, reflexive or it, it reacts to itself um, because these, al- you know, these, re- these algorithms just fight each other. Um, and, I, and I point out some research in the book about how they are just, um, they, they go into these circles and herding behavior that, that's even more extreme than what human investors do um, because, you know, they lack, ki- you know, kind of the, the irrationality that is, you know, good actually for humans to balance things out is lacking from these things. Um, and and I, I talk about one uh, researcher in the book who, who, who likens the behavior of the stock market to earth to aftershocks of an earthquake. So something, you know, something will move the market um, that may or may not be related to anything in the external world. And then the algorithms will react and it'll, it'll look kind of like, you know, these aftershocks where, it goes up and down and up and down and up and down, but it's it's not reacting to anything in the world. It's just reacting to itself. So it's this fascinating kind of a crazy situation. It is a synthetic beast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. you worked at Honeywell Aerospace uh, yep. for a while, and I'd be I'd, I'm very curious. You were hired as a cognitive scientist and human factors researcher. What is going on in terms of AI uh, and these you know the Boeing seven sevens that we're flying around in? Well, the, I mean, I. I would hesitate to call the automation on on airplanes AI. Um, it, it, it's it's certainly you know very smart software, um, but it's not. We're not yet. The, the automation on airplanes isn't. It, I guess you, it is making decisions. You know, it's um, you can turn on the autopilot, and it will follow uh, your flight path. You know, uh, for you. But you have to still program the flight path <laughs> into the into the flight management system. So, but I, I, there's definitely a, a huge push toward automated, um, or you know, a- autonomous flying vehicles, so that you would just get in and say something like, uh, "Go to L.A." and and they would just do it, and you wouldn't, you know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, or the or Google coming out with a, a car that you know you don't have to drive. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and that technology is really, I think that that kind of technology is probably closer than a lot of people might think. You know, that's that's something that that works already, uh, at least for cars and and for airplanes, for example. You know, with with really really crowded airspace, the automation is much better actually at dealing with the separation between other airplanes than humans are. You know, so now we need to make sure there's a, a lot of space between uh, airplanes. But but that's kind of the limiting factor of of how many airplanes you can cram you know into an approach. Uh, but if you let computers do that, you you could safely uh, cram a lot more airplanes <laughs> into the same space, which you know may or may not be. Yeah, you just want to keep your eyes closed during the approach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's take a quick call. Mitch is in Orangeville and has a question regarding AI. Mitch, are you there? Yeah. How you doing, guys? Very well. Thank you. Happy New Year. Go ahead. 
you too. Terrific. I, I got the opportunity uh, to meet a gentleman that worked in the Russian military. Uh, his resume is incredibly impressive. Impressive. Uh, it was about 15 years ago, but it was talking about topics such as this and research and development of math and algorithms of software design in real time and intellectual control systems. Um, he indicated that they were well further ahead than we possibly have any uh, idea. And uh, this information seems to tie into uh, the popular idea of a Russian scientist named Hadi Bath, and it ties into um, Harold Kotzbella's work with the black goo. Uh, would you have any knowledge on that, Andrew? I, I don't. I'm not familiar with that with those people. I've heard of gray goo in refer in in, in terms of nanotechnology. What is black goo? Well, it's Harold uh, Kotzbella that seems to be propagating this concept of um, an oil that has been extracted from the Earth. And I think it was sort of tied into X-Files at the end of the series. Um, but I just wondered that there seems to be this sort of uh, well, connecting of the dots to um, AI and some sort of other... Um, oil or, 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 or intelligently controlled self-automated systems. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, you've stumped me. And I don't know, uh, Andrew, if you have anything further to add. If not, we'll... Uh... Well, I mean, the only thing I could um, think of is, for, you know, for sure there's a lot of research in, in nanotechnology where you'd have, you know, like robots that you could inject, for example, for a medical purpose. So, you you know, they would be... My, you know these micro-engineered particles that that can actually you know have software in them, um, but I I mean I, I don't know what kind of substance they would be associated with or if there's any yeah but uh, otherwise yeah I'm not familiar with that. All right, Mitch, thank you for the thank call. You. Have a great night. We mentioned Ray Kurzweil earlier, and he's sort of at the forefront of the transhumanist movement, uh, which I have to be honest, I've I've, I've talked to a number of proponents of transhumanism, and uh, there's something that just does not sit well with me on many levels. Uh, but what about when we were talking about a hybrid? Uh, so you take a human mind, fully human uh, consciousness, and then you begin to merge it with AI that, that would basically ramp up our computational abilities uh, you know, to an X factor beyond, beyond, beyond. Uh, I mean, is that... Are we headed in that direction, and is there, are you concerned at all about that? I, I mean, I think we are for sure, and I, and I, I do talk about in the book um, Miguel Nicolelis um, at Duke in, in North Carolina. Um, you know, he he's really already developed kind of working uh, brain machine interfaces, or where I, I don't know if you've if you've seen it, but he, you know, his team made a basically a robot arm uh, that's controllable. Uh, through implants in a monkey's brain. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the, mon- the monkey learned how to, with its brain waves, you know, just control this arm that could reach out and grab a juice or whatever. Um, and I, I think that, you know, that, and it's inter- and I bring him up a lot in the book is because he doesn't believe that the mind is computable or that it runs on computation, and yet he's at the forefront of actually uh, making these kind of hybrid brain-machine systems. So I, I don't think... Um, I, I think that kind of technology will just continue to progress where we can implant things in the brain as tools and the brain kind of 
adapts to having this thing in it well, and, you and think learn about, how to use it as a tool. Sure. Think about people with spinal cord injuries. Uh, they yeah. have, they're quadriplegics, and, and with this type of technology, they can, they can move their legs and their arms again. Yeah. But I, I think the other the, – the dimension or the it, – it's one thing for – that we can decode um, intentions, you know, move like motor intentions um, and translate those into control signals for a robot. You know, you, you, you take the electrical activity that's generated in a certain part of the brain um, <clears throat> and you record that and then you, you analyze that data and you interpret whether the intention is to grab or move left or right – and those those kinds of I would say simple um, commands are are one thing. The 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 idea that you could actually enhance your own, you know, for example, let's say you're trying to remember uh, some historical fact or trying to figure out a math problem, that or or even access one of your own experiences from your life, and and what kind of implant you know or technology we could use to assist you or, or to assist our our brain, yet is very. I think that is very far away, where you you'd have some technology in your brain that would would help your memory and help your right uh, ability to to do very human, but but primarily subjective things is um, right. In other I words, think that's another level. <laughs> yes, we're, so you would suggest I'm gathering that we are a quantum leap from resleeving our consciousness and achieving virtual immortality. Yes, I, I think that um, – yes, I, I, I would say that that is um, a huge, a huge challenge because we – while we know we, we can more or less um, work out, you know, when we are intending to grab, you know, something <laughs> with our arm and we, we can map out on the brain or where in the brain that, that is more or less happening, you know, like a, uh, an internal thought or like uh, – an experience is something that is, and and even Nicolelis writes about this. It's it's not a computable state of the brain, uh, in principle. And there's there's a lot of uh, detailed reasons uh, for this. But uh, yeah, I think, like you said, I think that's a that's a huge leap. <laughs> well, I can rest easy now. I'll have a good night's <laughs> sleep. But uh, you know, I'm I'm so glad that you came on, and uh, because there is so much hype out there, even from. Great minds like Stephen Hawking, and and it seems like every month now, uh, we're getting uh, some uh, someone you know in higher learning or the halls of academia ringing the the alarm bells about AI and the the the, the singularity and the robot apocalypse. Um, but uh, you have really, I think, uh, turned down the heat on the burner on that and provided. Uh, some illumination, and I thank you. And, and congratulations on Beyond Zero and One. It's enlightening, but it's also good fun. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me on. It was, it was a lot of fun. Andrew, uh, very quickly, how can people get a hold of the book? Um, I, I just The best way is to go to Or Books, O-R Books, as, as one word, dot com. Uh, and that's the publisher. Um, you know, it's an ind- independent publisher, so any any support you can give to them, it's it's great. Amen to that. Orbooks.com? Yep. Excellent. Beyond Zero and One. Andrew Smart, thank you again. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you as well. All right. My website, strangeplanet.ca. Go, visit, poke around, register, become a member, fast, easy, free... 
And uh, as well, say hello on Twitter. Please follow at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. And of course, follow the truth. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi cab, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, your cabin in the woods. Welcome to our first show of 2016 and a happy new year to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM right here in Toronto, Ontario. Uh, Those of you streaming the show at zoomerradio.ca or on the HOA. Uh, or listening in via the Conspiracy Show app or the Zoomer Radio app. And my best wishes for 2016 to all of you listening in on one of our affiliates. And this week we welcome two new ones, KMEDAM and K249ASFM. I've never heard that uh, those call letters before, numbers mixed with letters. It could be a repeater transmitter, not sure. But those are both in Medford, Oregon. K-M-E-D-A-M and K-249-A-S-F-M in Medford, Oregon. Welcome aboard the crazy train, as I like to say. Thank you so much uh, to both of those new affiliates for making this program part of their weekly schedule. Wherever and however you're listening to The Conspiracy Show, I welcome you. I thank you uh, for your support and loyalty and good company. Uh, This hour... Open lines for the entire hour. Uh, You can ask me anything. We can talk about just about anything. Uh, And here are the numbers. In the greater Toronto area, call 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. And toll free, 1-866-740-4740. Let me repeat. In the greater Toronto area, call 416-360-0740 and toll-free 1-866-740-4740. If I had a special line, I could designate, uh, you could, it could be thumbs up or thumbs down on the beard. <laughs> if you're looking at, or streaming um, on YouTube and watching us uh, in the studio here via... Uh, YouTube, and we I got the thumbs up from Albert. We had a, a problem earlier with our HOA, but the Hangout, hangout on Air uh, is now up and running. Our inter- internet connection is functioning very well. So if you want to stream the show live on YouTube right now, just go to my HOA link on my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett, S as in Simon, T at Richard Serrett, Find the HOA link. Click on that, and you are in. Thumbs up or thumbs down on the new beard? (laughs) Why not? Uh, Anyway, I mentioned the two new affiliates uh, in Oregon. And we are following this story out of uh, Burns, Oregon. I'm not sure where Burns is in relation. I believe it's in the southwest of the state. Not sure where it is in relation to Medford, where our two new affiliates are. But there are a group of armed anti-government activists who are uh, encamped at a federal wildlife refuge there uh, Sunday evening, vowing to occupy the outpost for years, if necessary, to protest the federal government's treatment 
of a pair of local ranchers who are set to report to prison on Monday. And the occupation of a portion of the Mel, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Melur, perhaps, Melur National Wildlife Refuge, about 30 miles southeast of Burns, Oregon, uh, began a day earlier after a small group of men broke off from a much larger march and rally held on Saturday evening. Uh, the armed occupation is being led by Eamon Bundy. Now, that sounds familiar. Uh, he's an Idaho rancher, and his father is Cliven Bundy, Clive Bundy, who led an armed standoff with federal agents in Nevada back in 2014, you may recall. We talked about that a lot on this program. And um, Eamon Bundy has described his supporters as militiamen. I got a bad feeling about this one. Uh, those who want to go uh, take a hard stand, get in your trucks and follow me, Eamon Bundy declared uh, to rally goers at the conclusion of Saturday's event, according to several people who were in attendance. Not long afterward, the group had taken over the Federal Wildlife Preserve. Harney County Sheriff David M. Ward said authorities from several law enforcement organizations were monitoring the ongoing incident. Uh, these men came to Harney County claiming to be part of militia groups supporting local ranchers, Ward said in a statement on Sunday, when in reality these men had alternative motives to attempt to overthrow the county and federal government in hopes to spark a movement across the United States. Organizers of the rally, several hundred um, say, sorry, organizers of the rally say several hundred attended the procession through Burns, Oregon, a ranching town of less than 3,000 residents, in a show of support for Dwight Hammond, 73, and his son Stephen Hammond, 46, who in the conclusion of a decades of clashes with the federal government were sentenced last October to serve five years in prison. Uh, prosecutors accused the Hammonds of committing arson on federal land in 2001 and 2006. The men and their attorneys argued the fires had been set on their own property, once to prevent the spread of an invasive species of plant and once in an attempt to prevent the spread of a wildfire, and had inadvertently burned onto public lands. But prosecutors said the fires were set in an attempt to destroy evidence that the Hammonds had been illegally hunting deer on the federal lands. Wow. It's complex, but essentially we have militiamen with guns occupying part of a natural wildlife reserve in southwestern, I believe, Oregon. Uh, and they are bound and determined to stay there as long as it takes. Uh, as I say, and you can weigh in on this situation if you like. Uh, if, you, if you live in the area and you're listening to the program, I'd love to hear from you. This one has me worried. I fear it will not end well. Uh, is this the beginning, one has to wonder, of a year of unrest, armed militantism, anti-government activity? I fear it may well be the start of something. Uh, the anger and anti-government sentiment in the United States in certain jurisdictions is palpable. It's unlike anything I have ever seen or heard of in my lifetime. And it is, I fear, about to get worse. So we will keep a close eye on that one. And if you want to weigh in on that. Uh, the other thing I thought it might be fun to get your predictions for 2016. Your predictions on the domestic front, uh, both here in Canada and in the United States. Uh, 
your geopolitical predictions. Uh, if you want to talk about climate change, earth changes, maybe you've had a vision, a dream. Uh, these predictions could be based on some sort of a, a vision uh, or a dream or a feeling that you have or just based on good old-fashioned hard work, research, connecting the dots, which is something we like to do on the program. If you have a prediction uh, on the health front, the cure for some disease just around the corner perhaps, 416 let me give you the numbers again. And uh, this is uh, in the 416 area, Greater Toronto Area, 416-360-0740. And toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Again, 416-360-0740. And toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Now, speaking of uh, predictions... Not sure if you heard about this. We tweeted uh, this story. It's a, uh, a blind mystic who made uh, some rather chilling predictions for 2016 and beyond. And she reportedly foretold 9-11, the 2004 boxing tsunami, the Fukushima nuclear spill, and the birth of ISIS. Uh, and she also, as I say, made dire predictions for 2016 and beyond. Bulgarian-born prophetess Baba Vanga, Baba Vanga, who died in 1996, aged 85, was known as Nostradamus from the Balkans. Oh, I like that. That's quite a handle. Nostradamus from the Balkans. And Baba Vanga, uh, thanks to a purported 85% success rate, has long been revered in Russia and Europe as a kind of supernatural saint. Of the hundreds of predictions Vanga made over her 50-year career as a celebrated clairvoyant, a large number alluded to natural and climate change-related disasters. She warned of melting polar ice caps and rising sea temperatures back in the 1950s, decades before anyone had heard of global warming. Hmm, global warming, eh? Well... Uh, I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I would say right out of the chute, she's 0 for 1. <laughs> All politics aside, I think I've made it very clear. I don't subscribe to uh, anthropogenic global warming. However, I won't hold this one against her uh, because she's made hundreds of predictions. And uh, by all accounts, uh, well, 85% success rate. Her followers believe her vivid description of a huge wave that would descend on a big coast covering people and towns and causing everything to disappear under the water was a reference to the 2004 tsunami and earthquake, which claimed hundreds of thousands of lives across the Pacific Rim. But it's Vanga's preoccupation with a great Muslim war that has sent believers, conspiracy theorists, and Islamophobics into a doomsday frenzy in recent months as the world struggles to contain the escalating threat from Islamic State and its affiliates. The chilling prophecies warn of a 2016 invasion of Europe by Muslim extremists. Some might say that's already begun. A conflict, she predicted, would begin with the Arab Spring in 2010, play out in Syria, where Muslims would use chemical warfare against Europeans and culminate 
in the establishment of a caliphate by 2043 with Rome at its epicenter. According to Vanga, Europe as we know it will cease to exist by the end of next year. Following the systematic elimination of entire populations, leaving the continent almost empty, a wasteland almost entirely devoid of, devoid of any human form of life, any form of life. If that sounds dramatic, consider the developments of the past year, which has seen ISIS edge perilously close to Europe with the taking of Syria, or Sirte, rather, a key Libyan city, overlooking the Mediterranean and the birthplace of the late dictator Gaddafi. Baba Vanga. There you go. The predictions of the blind prophet. Now, how about yours? Your predictions for 2016 and beyond, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett, and I hope you'll Stay with me for the duration. So good to have you with me. You're great company. Welcome to 2016. All right, your predictions for 2016 and beyond. And uh, we are going to begin with a, a good friend of the program, UFO disclosure advocate and uh, the executive director of Zeland Communications, our very own Victor Vigiani. Happy New Year, my friend. Victor, are you there? Victor? Yeah, right here. There you are, my friend. Yes. All right, we found you, and you found us. We got you. All right, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. All right, 2016 is, uh, well, take it where you want to go. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be regarding UFO disclosure. Well, yeah. Um, it, it, if, I'm not really one to, to make predictions. I just sort of sit and wait to see how things unfold and try to nudge them one way or another. Um, it's it's kind of hard to, to to make predictions, but at least you can maybe have a look at some of uh, what's going on right now and how it's going to evolve um, in the next six to eight months and possibly um, a bit longer, and how all of the different factors that have come into play regarding this issue, the so-called issue of disclosure, is going to unfold. I think we're going to see some uh, a, a real a real twist, a real change in direction in how people begin to understand uh, the need for disclosure and. And, and not the whole attitude uh, that we have to just uh, go to the government cap in hand and ask them to tell us that this phenomenon is real. I think that we've uh, evolved beyond that, and I think we're in a position right now to almost sidestep the government and virtually ignore the kinds of um, assessments they have of this issue, because they do a great job of, of uh, an orchestrated job of ignoring and 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 uh, mythologizing this information. And I think it's time that we just sidestep these, these people and go in another direction to try to achieve the kind of disclosure that, that will be very meaningful to people. I, I agree. Uh, and further, I mean, I think 2016 may be the start um, when we stop asking or relying or expecting those sorts of things to come from government sources. Precisely. Uh, and that's a healthy development. Oh, for sure. Um, the, the only thing that I, I kind of um, question my mind about what I'm suggesting is uh, in saying that, that uh, the, the, the Canadian theater in terms of the political landscape that's going on right now has really done a big turnaround and it's being recognized internationally in terms of, of the new government that's, taken, that's sort of quote-unquote taken over Canada um, uh, to replace the Harper government. There is definitely um, a different feel in the air to this, to this administration. And uh, they're they're sort of uh, on a bit of a high horse of being transparent and open and and as you can tell the way uh, the way Justin Trudeau um, is handling himself he's become 
almost the darling of, of Canadian politics. And rightly or wrongly, or however that may unfold, the fact of the matter is, is we've got a very open, uh, on the surface anyways, uh, Canadian government, and that may provide different avenues for us too, but I'm not holding my breath on that. No, we're certainly in the honeymoon period. Uh, and and so there are always heightened expectations. Uh, and certainly, yes, he is sending the signal that, uh, at least early on, that this is not politics as usual. Um, but that's often the case with a new administration. And there are there are always hopes for, you know, uh, renewed hopes for transparency and so forth. And mm-hmm. as to whether these materialize under this administration, we'll have to see. Yeah. Um, but... In terms of you, you, you hinted at sort of new directions. Yeah. Uh, is there any? Uh, and you and I have talked uh, about um, uh, a new initiative by Daniel Sheehan. That's correct. I think that's probably the the uh, the number one on um, on most people's list right now of the um, the cutting edge activities that are going on. It's, it would take a long time to really explain the whole thing. There was a webinar on yesterday where Danny um, uh, invited and the the host Costas. Uh, of uh, ET Let's Talk, they had a webinar yesterday, and well over 250 people uh, were listening in on the we- on the webinar. And uh, Danny uh, went on to explain. Um, he was in Brazil at the time. Went on to explain how the Vatican um, is uh, becoming interacted uh, with um, the uh, the new Paradigm Research Institute that he has established. And the whole idea behind that is that. Uh, and uh, I believe it was in mid to, mid to late October where Danny went over to Rome and actually had face-to-face meetings with the uh, director of the Vatican Observatory, uh, Father Gabriel um, uh, Funes, uh, a Jesuit priest. And they had uh, several days of meetings there, and Danny uh, made a request of Father Funes and said, Father, would you consider uh, being part of the new Paradigm Institute and, and coming over to Berkeley, California at the, at the university there and participating in an event which could take up to a year uh, in order to uh, gather um, uh, experts from all over the world to uh, come forward to analyze, assess, talk about, and have open disclosure about this whole extraterrestrial issue. And uh, at the time, Father Funia said, yes, uh, Mr. Sheen, I will do that. I will take a sabbatical from the observatory, and then I will come over to, to, to join you uh, in, in, in Berkeley, California. Now, the first six months of this, um, possibly even longer, from, I think, January to September, uh, Danny will be putting up uh, together a board of directors who will uh, send letters out and seek out uh, experts from all over the world in, term, in terms of you know, physics, science, uh, theology, uh, academics, uh, writers, journalists, as, as many people as, we possibly, as he possibly can, put them together and vet these uh, individuals, and from that, uh, select a, um, a really kind of high-profile group to come and form a committee. And Father Funes has agreed to be the chairman uh, of this committee. And it has full sanction um, uh, from, the, from the Vatican. This is coming directly from the Vatican, so there's no doubt about you know, the, the origins of this. And the, I think the Institute, with Danny's uh, structuring, will give the opportunity for some very, very high-level discussions involving the Vatican uh, and, and the general public, so, uh, and, and these experts that will go in to uh, look more at what the evidence is surrounding the whole ET issue. Is it uh, possible, and I, I understand full well, and I know you do, Victor, that as soon as there seems to be sort of a marriage between UFO disclosure and the Vatican or the Catholic Church or the papacy, people throw their hands up and they say, well, now we'll never get the truth. 
uh, and I know that Daniel Sheehan is uh, um, a, Jesu- a Jesuit. Um, but it is interesting this this partnership. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you what do you say to people? And, and you and I appeared on a stage not too long ago mm-hmm. when one of the guests did exactly that, sort of rolled his eyes and said, "Well, are you kidding me? The Catholic Church, the papacy, uh, and UFO disclosure will never happen." Mm-hmm. How do you respond to that? Well, I, I my, my overall assessment of that of that is sort of a, a, de- a dead end feeling about the possibilities, Richard. I think what is happening here is that we have a golden opportunity uh, to engage not just with who, but what will be said publicly about this. And uh, I think um, being uh, originating from either the New Paradigm Institute that uh, Danny Sheen has set up, or be it the Vatican, um, it's not going to be a matter of uh, you know believing or, or trusting whatever institutions might be put in place to look at this stuff. If you have a look at who is going to be participating and the whole model that Danny has structured, uh, all he's doing basically is using and, and trying to grab the, the ears of a lot of different people on this whole issue in terms of the experts that have up until now completely rejected uh, th- this whole thing. So what he's going to be, he's not going to be calling them on a bunch of people that already believe this stuff. Um, he looks like he's going to be uh, trying to capture people who have big, big questions about it. And I think the forum... Uh, through the Vatican as an international institution, regardless of your feelings one way or another. The fact is there will be open dialogue for the very first time in history uh, about the UFO ET issue. And I guess that's the, the probably the main feature that we have to look at here, not who it's coming from. That, if, you know, if it happened to be the United Nations, you know, so be it too. But it, it so happens that we have a man in Daniel Sheehan, um, a former uh, you know, uh, Jesuit um, lawyer, uh, he was he he um, he's not a Jesuit priest. He's a so he's right. a lawyer who represented the uh, uh, the Jesuits uh, here in uh, in in North America. So he did that for several years. So he knows this order, and the fact that uh, the current Pope is a Jesuit is propelling this issue even further. When Pope Francis comes out and starts attacking corporations for their part in uh, in in you know destroying the planet, and he's made some very clear statements about that. So the the idea behind the Vatican's new direction and openness is something that I think Danny is taking advantage of. And being a former Watergate lawyer and someone who was involved in the release of the Pentagon Papers, we're talking about a man who's very compelled about issues. He, he has a, an enormous amount of gravitas, to be that sure. You're absolutely correct. Uh, Victor Vigiani, uh, Executive Director of Zeland Communications. Uh, Victor, do you think the Pope is under the same sort of pressures as the President of the United States, uh, in, in other words, behind closed doors, this monumental struggle behind those who want to disclose and those who do not? Mm. That, that's a very good question. Um, I, I, you know, having been brought up as a Catholic, you know, you, you get to sort of um, become rather uh, close to the uh, actual structure of the Church, and, and I did a lot of work within the Church itself in, in, on, a, on a diocesan level here in Toronto. So I know how the the, uh, the church operates in terms of the uh, the, the the hierarchy, the, you know, the cardinals, the bishops, and all of the institutional the people who, who hold the Catholic Church together in the in the diocese all over the planet. Uh, you get to understand how they work, and it's um, almost like a military structure in some ways. Um, however, um, uh, the, the 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 head of the church, being the Pope, uh, this man has an incredible amount of power and authority. Uh, very often, you know, people have one or the other, but he has the power uh, and the authority, 
you know, power being influenced and, and just the, the gravitas of his presence, plus the authority of the church. So he's probably, when you get right down to it, probably the most um, powerful individual on the planet in terms of redirecting public interest towards any issue that he wants. Because, I mean, I don't know how many Catholics there are. There's billions of Catholics worldwide. And when you can command the attention of that many people, regardless of how they might feel or others might feel about the church, if you can grab their attention in the way that Pope Francis has, you've done something. And this man has managed to do that. And I feel that this whole connection that Danny's making with the Vatican is going to allow that kind of influence from the Pope, which could not come from the president. There are too many political uh, machinations there that would have to go on in order for the president to, to lead this as, uh, as Funes is, or even if you want to say that, uh, that uh, Pope Francis is leading this. I wouldn't say that just yet. I, I'm not saying that he has anything to do with the public articulation of this issue yet. He may eventually, but right now I think he's sitting back, relaxing with his uh, new movement uh, fully astride and just see how things happen. Uh, We need to work on getting Daniel Sheehan and Father Bruno Funes on this program. Do you think that's possible? Yep. Yeah, we are. um, um, He's he's well aware that that we want to have him on the program, Richard. Um, I've spoken to him twice now. Um, he, he not only he would love to be on the program, but he's also um, uh, shown some interest in being part of, the, uh, uh, of a conference coming up here in, in, um, in Brantford, Ontario, at the end of June. Uh, the ACE conference um, is a cosmic expo that, uh, that, um, that we're going to be having, and, and I'm glad to you know, say that you, you could be part of that, too. Yes. But we'll be part of that, in fact. Um, so that, that conference is going to be very, very important, and I think that um, him coming up here... Uh, to to be part of that would be very very important. Now, when you say he, you're saying Daniel Sheehan. Are we including the head of the Vatican Observatory, Father Bruno Funes, as well? Wow! If we could ever do that, Richard, it would just blow me away. Um, if <laughs> the thing is, right now, uh, as far as um, the webinar information came, yes, as of yesterday, uh, between uh, January and, and August of of, um, of this year. Father Funes will be teaching a course on extraterrestrial uh, policy and procedures in, in Argentina at, at a university down there. So he will be occupied uh, in, in Argentina from, uh, I believe, the you know, beginning of January right through to August. Well, perhaps by Skype. You know, if we could arrange that, and uh, if, you know, if I could talk to Danny to, to pull that one off, that would be a, a coup like... Uh, you could never imagine or describe. <laughs> well, well, in the meantime, we'll work on getting uh, the head of Vatican Observatory and Daniel uh, on, on this program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, Victor, a website for Zeland, please. Yes, all people have to do is just simply Google um, uh, our, our, our title, Zeland Communications. Just Google Z-L-A-N-D Communications, all one word, and you'll come up with... Uh, all the good stuff that, that we have to offer uh, on, on the network that we that we provide. All right, I'm sure you'll be issuing uh, regular dispatches on Daniel Sheehan's uh, initiative with the head of the Vatican Observatory. They're in the hopper right now. I've got them all sequenced, as a matter of fact. Just waiting for his go-ahead to uh, uh, to blow this out in the open, so uh, uh, to get it public in the way that we want. All right, Victor, happy New Year to you, my friend. Thank you for checking in. All the best, brother. Take care. Bye now. All right, Victor Vigiani, Zeland Communications. Uh, let's say hi to George here in Toronto. George, welcome and happy New Year. Well, happy New Year to you, Richard. You know, there was a couple lines in an Iggy Pop song uh, on board. It goes, uh, I'm sick. 
I'm sick of all the stiffs and I'm sick of all the dips. <laughs> and that's pretty much how I'm, I'm thinking about a lot of the stuff in the world. But in particular, I was going to talk about something I saw on CPAC today was uh, the head of the Bank of Canada, Mr. Polos. Mm-hmm. He was talking about you know, the economy a bit, interest rates. And you know, your last guest, not Victor, the, the, the one you had in the first hour, kind of alluded to how the stock market and markets in general are not reacting to the reality of the economy. Exactly. I think I've been noticing this for a while. And Polos was saying, you know, well, we've got tools. Central banks have tools. We can go to negative interest rates like they have over in, I think it was Switzerland or someplace. We can use um, asset buying back, which I think um, they've done in England. And Um, let's not forget about bail-ins. Yeah, bail-ins, all this kind of, it's just crap Richard, you know. Sure, the stock market's been going up, but the savers who want to, the, the retired people who want to put their money into something safe, they're getting diddly squat. The banks don't care, right? They want to try and force people into these, the stock market and other riskier ventures. And, yeah, they're trying to soak up all this excess liquidity. Yeah, and don't forget, too, you know, Richard, he was making the point we've got quantitizing easing as another tool. And then he, he said, you know, that's been tried in Japan and it works. Well, it hasn't worked. No, it has not worked. Guy Japan has been mired in, in, in a recession for over 20 years now. All these central bankers are a bunch of freaking liars. I've got to get Rocco Galati back on the program the, uh, to, to find out what's going on with that uh, uh, court case against the, uh, uh, well... I guess he's named uh, everyone from the, uh, the the former finance ministers to the Queen of England in conspiracy as it, with regards to the Bank of Canada Act. Uh, George, Happy New Year. Thanks for checking in. I've got a great story about bankers in Switzerland when we come back. Thank you. Open lines. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. All right. If you've got a line, hold on to it. I will get to you. Uh, we had a, a caller earlier, George, uh, talking about uh, uh, banks and banksters and... This is another story uh, that we tweeted earlier, uh, yesterday or today. Switzerland to vote on banning banks from creating money. A referendum on, rat- uh, on a radical proposal to give central banks sole money creation power will be held after a petition gained 110,000 signatures. Switzerland will hold a referendum to decide whether to ban commercial banks from creating money. The Swiss federal government confirmed on Thursday of this week that it would hold the plebiscite after more than 110,000 people signed a petition calling for the central bank to be given sole power to create money in the financial system. The campaign, led by the Swiss sovereign money movement and known as the Volgeld Initiative, is designed to limit financial speculation by requiring private banks to hold 100% reserves against their deposits. So, essentially, an end to fractional reserve banking. Bankers won't be able to create money for themselves anymore. They'll only be able to lend money that they have from savers or other banks, said the campaign group. Under Switzerland's direct democracy, a referendum can be held if a motion gains 100,000 signatures within 18 months of launching. If successful... 
the sovereign money bill would give the Swiss National Bank a monopoly on physical... Whoops. Just got a pop-up on my... I was reading this from my iPhone, and uh, see if I can get that story back. Well, there. Anyway, I've lost the story, but uh, you get the idea. Wow. Can you imagine if that referendum passes? Switzerland. I mean, we had something similar with Iceland a few years ago. It wasn't reported widely in the news, but essentially it was, a, it was a revolution. A citizens' council took over the government. They threw all the politicians out. They sent bankers to jail. All right, Ed is in London. Ed, Happy New Year, my friend. Here. When are we going to get to real democracy? Never. <laughs> well, I'd like to make a comment on... Uh what you're saying about the hopefulness of the new government. One I do not share, however. I don't share that either. My uh, new quote is that we're going to get Obama change. Exactly. Yes. To me, the most important fast election was the C-51 and the TPP. And those two issues, I'm probably on my own with all my acquaintances. But anyway, it seems like we're not getting any change to those two items, really. No, you don't get fundamental change, uh, ever. Uh, under this system of government, because it's an illusion that we have three parties. We have individuals who are vying to be the CEO of the board of directors. Uh, and so they talk change. They talk a good game, of course, before the election, but once they get into power, it's back to normal. There really isn't any difference. Uh, well, you know, know sat in the fence, but uh, Mulcair said he would definitely cancel both of those. And I was a little disappointed that didn't happen. Well, but then, you know, what happens is they say that, but then it's like, how often do we hear, for example, uh, you know, they're going to all of these spending bills or, or, or whatever and uh, campaign promises where they bribe us with, with our own money. And then right. when they get into power, it, it's like it came down from central script writing in Hollywood. You can... You know what they're going to say. We didn't realize how much of a mess they left us. We didn't realize the cupboards were bare. I mean, I can, I can lip sync it before they even say it. It's, it's the same nonsense. And I, uh, uh, I have no... I mean, they, they will make some, some changes on the social uh, front. They, you know, they might... They may manage to legalize marijuana. I'm right. kind of a split mind of that. But the fundamental... Issues they will not change. They they're not going to, for example, um, you know, uh, uh, adhere to the the Bank of Canada Act. Right. They're not going to do that. They're all in on the game. Seems to be. I tell you, the funding funding portion of that C fifty one is the most dangerous uh, and scary part for me. To increase the funding to CSIS. <laughs> I'm sure they're doing things beyond their mandate already. Increasing their mandate, even with oversight, is going to be useless. All right, Ed in London, thank you for checking in. Happy New Year to you, and uh, we shall see. We'll talk again. All right, my friend. Okay. All right, uh, we have just about a minute or two before the break. Uh, so um, I know our good friend, media scientist Nelson Thal, is uh, is there. So hold on, Nelson because we're going to go into a break. I'll get to you after the break. Uh, Albert Vinzel, uh, the first time on mic in 2016. We'll go and dip into the mailbag now. What have you got for us? Okay. I, I, Whoops. Finally... Okay, there we go. Start again. 
Okay, I've got three of them. I, I start. The first one says, "Hello, Richard, big fan. Just a note, as I enjoy your podcast very much, I am wondering if you will consider having Peter Lavinda on as a guest. He really seems to connect a lot of the dots, especially between UFO connections to the JFK assassination. I've read his books and heard him speak. He's full of value." Keep up the great work. I will be listening. Colin. All right. Where's Colin checking in from, does he say? Um, let me see. It just. I think it said MB, which I think is Manitoba, isn't it? Uh, it just says inquiry email. All right. Uh, Peter Lavenda, we've never had him on the program, and he, he does connect a lot of dots. I mean, not only between UFOs and JFK, but also Nazis. And uh, you know, let's do that, uh, Albert. Let's make that our New Year's resolution. We will get... Peter Lavenda on the program. If you're listening, Colin, that's just for you. You make the requests and we play the hits. <laughs> you got, we have time for one more quick one, Albert. Okay, it's from Gene, and it says, Richard, big fan from California, Silicon Valley Bay Area. Listen in, on TuneIn app. Um, we got a lot of followers on TuneIn. Yeah, he says, listens uh, at night with a set of sleep headphones. He plugs into his smartphone and plays the show. Uh, shuts shuts down the timer as he goes to bed. Uh, show is often doom and gloom, but I find comfort in your program as it really helps me. Uh, I feel your program helps put all the cards on the table, and I know at least there is no hidden BS. I have a BA in sociology. Uh, the biggest thing we learned is not to be tricked, not to be tricked by the media, history books, politicians, are from the current common scene. I believe you said something along those lines on the show. Indeed we have. All right, uh, Albert, and what was his name again? This is Gene from California. All right, Gene in California, Happy New Year. Thanks for your lovely email. When we come back, Nelson Thal, media scientist, checks in with his predictions for 2016. Stay with us. All righty, welcome back. Our inaugural show for 2016. Uh, next week on the program... Uh, who do we have, uh, Albert? We have... Um, uh, Patty Greer. Patty Greer, yes, uh, the crop circle lady. Uh, but she's she's going to be on the program to talk about something very different. Uh, she underwent, uh, like a lot of people, she had uh, fillings um, uh, made of mercury. And uh, she has suffered a lifelong battle with, she believes, mercury poisoning. And uh, so she's going to be on with a dentist uh, to talk about... Mercury poisoning. And there are a lot of people walking around with those amalgam fillings that contain mercury. And um, that should be interesting. And also, of course, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will return with our uh, first Paranormal News Roundup of 2016. All right. Right now we have our uh, another good friend of the program checking in, media scientist, archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, JFK assassination researcher, Nelson Thal. Hey, Nels, how are you, my friend? Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you, Richard. Great show. Thank you. All right. What do you see in 2016? Well, I think it's going to continue a lot of what is already happening. Um, so uh, what you see now is what is going to happen, but probably get a lot, a little bit more intense uh, as the war heats up between the... Um, uh, basically, between the West and uh, and the tribes of the Middle East, things are definitely going to heat up and become more violent. And uh, 
I think at some point we'll see. I don't know if this year is the year for it. We'll see. Uh, I think we're in for a. Uh, we've had Hiroshima, Nagasaki. They haven't ever. We haven't had any of these technologies that. There's always a technology that's going to be used. It's never just kept on the shelf. At some point, it's used. So, I think at some point we're going to have a tactical atomic bomb go off. And matter of fact, remember uh, Benton Parton, uh, the who was uh, we looked into and interviewed. He pointed out that um, they used a small tactical one at Oklahoma, at, um, in Oklahoma at the Murrah building, and all the sniff dogs died of radiation poisoning. You and, remember and, that. So, and, Benton Parton, very... and Benton Parton was on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he was the head of Reagan's non-nuclear arsenal, correct? Right. And he was hired by the FBI to do the report at Oklahoma City and claim that the fertilizer bomb could never have destroyed the building because it was from a bomb out from inside, not outside, and of course, but um, I think we're going to have the same sort of thing, look for that to go off, and it's going to be interesting to see uh, what faction of, of the tribe of Manasseh that Trump represents, whether he's a Benjaminite or a Manassite, and what his game plan is, so, uh, but it's hard to really tell, but um, in the past, there's been Samson's, and the people are crying out for a savior right now, Americans are realize that they're in big trouble, and they're crying out for a savior, and the question is, will he come, and will it be Trump? Will he be the last Trump? It's hard to tell. We'll just have to watch. The last Trump, that's, there's a, that's a biblical illusion. At the last Trump. We do know that the Great Tribulation is coming, and the collapse of the English-speaking nations. That's predicted in the pages of the Bible. And, and so far, we found it to be extreme, extremely accurate as media scientists. Uh how about on the Canadian uh, front? Uh, anything jumping out at you? We, uh, I was talking about the Bank of Canada Act, and I had Rocco Galati on last year uh, because he was involved with this court case uh, charging everyone from the former prime minister, former ministers of finance, the Queen, uh, the Queen of England with conspiracy because we have this thing called the Bank of Canada Act, and it is largely ignored. They don't. Um, they don't use it, and 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 um, you know we are supposed to be able to use the, the Bank of Canada uh, to, to to lend money to provinces, municipalities, to the federal government at low or no interest. This was how the St. Lawrence Seaway was paid for. This is how our our war effort during the Second World War was paid for, and then something happened in the early to mid seventies, uh, and they basically shelved the Bank of Canada Act. Well, you know, you end the show uh, with the quote, the biblical quote. Do you want to just repeat it right now? Because I think that's a, what's going to happen. Everything, what, what is it? How do you Well, it's it from off? Matthew. It's don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. Yeah, and I think that in the next year, we're going to see a lot of things that state secrets that have been kept from the people are going to more and more get out because that's... Uh, what's happening. More and more of the state secrets, the ruling lead, hope you don't learn, are coming out more and more and more, like the Benton Parton. Look at that. There's just been so many uh, things that have been revealed and exposed, and uh, it's up to every person to make himself a committee of one and do the research for himself as well. Does this mean that the, the elites are losing their hold, their grip? I think the elites are losing their hold, their grip, and I think more than that, the media has lost its hold and grip on the collective consciousness and are very desperate for 
for an audience. And I mean, look at they're using Trump as fodder every night. Well, it's, a, well, it's a perfect illustration how the MSM is losing their control because it's it's quite obvious, love or hate Trump, there is a concerted effort to take him down, and yet the MSM has proven to be completely powerless because no matter what they throw at him, instead of weakening him, all they do is strengthen him because the people are so fed up. I mean, the only... You know, they, they hold, the, in the United States certainly, the U.S. Congress in such low regard. I think that the approval rating for Congress now is somewhere around 20 percent, 20 percent. And I think it's about the same for the MSM. Well, in ancient America, they had a savior, and his name was Samson. He rescued the United States, and his power was in his hair. And we could very much have the same thing with Trump. He may be a Samson number two. Oh, with the hair. Interesting. <laughs> Ian <laughs> yeah, Robertson is, is shaking his head. His hair like Samson? Who knows? Interesting. Interesting. Except Samson didn't use uh, a couple of cans of hairspray every day, however. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Nelson, anything? How about um, on the JFK front? Uh, you know, um, we are getting to the point where just about anyone who had anything to do with that uh, is either dead or, you know, getting very, very long in the tooth. Well, the will we start first... to see some deathbed confessions? Yeah, I think, well, exactly, we will. And a lot of it has come out already. As a matter of fact, Tom Hennigan has published about Operation, you know, they called it, Bush called it Operation Elm Street. I didn't realize that after 30 or more years of studying intensely the Kennedy assassination and meeting a lot of the witnesses down at the Kennedy um, conventions, um, they called it Operation Elm Street. Isn't that interesting? I've it never is. heard that before. It is, because, yeah, that was obviously one of the streets Houston on the parade Elm. route. Houston and, and Elm. And, and how do we know that George Bush called it Operation Elm Street? Where did that come from, that um, French story? intelligence. Remember, French. The, remember all, the, all the big intelligence that's come out of the truth came out of thanks to French intelligence. They have been the ones who they were watching in Dealey Plaza. A lot of the other intelligence agencies were watching uh, where they had agents just watching and, and collecting so that they could use it, uh, they could use the evidence for extortion purposes. I mean, this right. was the thing about it. The people who pulled off the assassination couldn't do it in private, so they've been paying extortion money, and Sherman Skolnick talked a lot about the uh, George Bush's nut every month, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so could 2016 be the year that we finally solve JFK, or um, is that wishful thinking? I think it's wishful thinking that the public will ever know about it, but certainly we really have got it solved, and um, it's not difficult. It was solved. The district attorney of the state, the district attorney was bang on. Garrison wrote about it, so that we know what, who, who, the, the, only if only one or two groups could pull off that assassination and make sure everything happened. The army was in the day. A third of the American army was in the air that day. The cabinet was on its way to, to Japan. The code book had been removed. The phone system of Washington was cut down. This was a major military operation. Only one huge big group, which we know where, you know, where that centered and Garrison uh, mentioned it and Clay Shaw was all Vatican. 
All right. Uh, yep. Nelson, before I let you go, I know you've been working on a new website, but I don't know if I don't want to tell tells out of school. Is that ready to announce or, or do we no, keep, not, not yet. yet? All right. Well, we'll make it a big announcement when that's ready. To yeah, go. at the right time. But anyway, 2016 is going to be uh, certainly a lot of pillage hastens, unfortunately, and earthquakes and a lot of the weather disturbances. And uh, it's going to be interesting. But people have to set fast in their seatbelt because the unexpected will happen. All right, Nelson, my friend, thank you and happy new year. Thanks a lot, Richard. And the show will just can go nowhere but up in 2016 because people are starved for the truth. I appreciate that. Nelson Thal, media scientist. Good night. All right. Uh, let's say hi to Bill in Cambridge. Hello. Hi, Bill. Yeah, great to get in. Uh, we have one of those um, dolls that's dressed up as a hobo, and Ellen Guiley's been talking about... Oh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, yes. Yeah, about getting rid of those. Now... I'm having trouble with um, with someone here about not wanting to let it go now. Oh, wait a second. Now, let's just just to clarify. Uh, you have a clown. Uh, someone has collected clowns, and you have a clown. It's dressed as a hobo, as they often were, like Red Skelton. We remember that. Yeah, it's and you two, two feet tall or so. Yeah. And this one, this clown is what? It's it's acting strangely. I just have a bad feeling about it. But we've put it we put it down in the basement. And I'm wondering. If if that's adequate to safeguard it from your knowledge, or do you need to do something else with it? Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're getting a bad vibe from this clown, and a lot of us do. Right, right. <laughs> uh, I, you know what? Rosemary is going to be on the program next week. Yeah. So I'm going to ask her about that. I, I'd appreciate that because, because, see, there's some sentimental value to a member of the family. Sure. And she doesn't want to dump it. You know, I... I just as soon let it go, but I'm having problems. Now, on when did you start getting these bad vibes from this clown? Oh, um, a member of the family passed, and it was sent over to us, and I had a bad feeling, and I've heard um, Rosemary Ellen Guiley talking about... Well, dolls, yeah, because they, if it's a favorite item of someone and they pass, yeah. the, the theory goes that they could attach themselves, their spirit... Right. Uh, or energy or whatever yes. could attach themselves to that particular artifact, and then you bring it into your house like an antique, for example, yes. and then things start to change. So yes. um, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, I'm sure, um, will will suggest some sort of a cleansing yeah. uh, ritual. Oh, that'd be great. And I will, um, I'll put that to her. I'd uh, really appreciate it if you could squeeze that in. My pleasure. I'd like. Oh. I'd be happy to do that. Bill, thank you so much for checking in from Cambridge. Yeah, and, and keep up the good work. I really appreciate your show. I appreciate it. Thank right. you. Happy New Year, Bill. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bill has a clown doll problem, and that is not rare. That is not rare. Uh, I know, Ian, uh, you were a little nervous about Bill coming on because you weren't sure where he was going, but as soon as he said clown dolls, I knew exactly. You know, a lot of people have a, a real fear not only of clowns, but of, uh, of clown dolls. And I know clown doll collectors, and i got to be honest, it freaks me out too. All right, so we will take care of that next week when Rosemary Ellen Guiley drops by on the program. Ian Robertson, thank you so much. Looking forward to a great 2016 with you and Albert Finzel for your tireless work. Happy New Year to you as well. Back next week, Patty Greer, Mercury Poisoning, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. 
Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.